Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Gary Kent. As we open his word this afternoon, could I invite you just to bow your heads and we'll invite the presence of the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Father and that you love us and that you care for us. We thank you that we are part of your family. And dear Lord, as we come to worship you and praise you this afternoon, we invite your presence to be with us. Bless us, dear Lord. Give us a bountiful Sabbath day's blessing, we pray. And we ask, dear Lord, that the good news of Jesus will spread first and foremost for us right here in the heart of this city, Sydney. And that it will spread, Lord, and that it will go to all the world. So every person will have an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and prepare for his soon coming. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, I want to take you on a journey into the South Pacific. And I want to introduce you to Johnny Lingo. Now, Johnny Lingo lived on the South Pacific island of Nurembandi, right near another island. In fact, they were part of the same atoll, the same atoll group, the island of Kiniwata. Now, on these particular islands, the people practiced a custom of offering a dowry to a girl's family when a young man would ask for her hand in marriage. See, the fathers of these islands demanded payment for their daughters. And generally, it was in the form of cows. And so, for example, two cows would buy you an average wife. If you could afford four cows, you would get above average wife. And, uh, well, three cows would get you above average wife. Four cows would get you a very good wife. Now, five cows was the record dowry ever paid in that entire island group. And, of course, the better the bride, the higher the price in cows. And so, friends, it's not surprising that in that island group, this custom became a status symbol, a status symbol and a point of pride for those brides who had been offered or whose family had been offered a high price. It became a status symbol. And so after marriage, women of the village compared their value and beauty based on the number of cows that had been offered for them. Of course, a four-cow woman was obviously more highly esteemed than a two-cow woman. Now, Johnny Lingo, he was the brightest, the strongest, the sharpest, the richest young man in the islands. He was a very, very smart businessman. He was the sharpest trader in the islands. He could get the best bargain when it came to any item that was for sale. And so if somebody came looking for accommodation, people would say, oh, you need to see Johnny Lingo. 
He'll be able to help you get a good deal. If people wanted to buy fresh fruit and vegetables, they would say, make sure you see Johnny Lingo. He's the guy. He'll get you the best deal there is. If you wanted to know the best place to fish, Johnny Lingo. He knew the best place to fish in the islands. This particular island group was famous for pearls, still is. And so if you wanted to know where to buy pearls, Johnny Lingo would get you the best deal. He was the sharpest trader in the islands. Well, an American trader by the name of Harris came to the islands and he wanted to engage, he wanted to set up a business. And so wherever he went, as he tried to establish a business, people said, you need to see Johnny Lingo. Contact Johnny Lingo. However, he noticed that whenever people mentioned the name of Johnny Lingo, there was a bit of a a snigger, you know, a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. People would would giggle and, and laugh whenever they mentioned his name. And so to Mr. Harris, this was the strangest thing imaginable. People always spoke highly of Johnny Lingo, the smartest, sharpest, wealthiest young man in the islands. He knew everything. He could do everything. But yet they always seemed to have a little mocking smile when his name was mentioned. And this was confusing. And so he began to say, listen, what's going on here? You all tell me how great this guy is. You all tell me I've got to see Johnny Lingo. But then you you laugh, you you, you snigger behind your your hands. Uh, uh, What's going on? Well, it became quite frustrating and he became quite irritated by this. And eventually one of the islands, islanders came and said, Mr. Harris, I'm going to tell you why people here on Kiniwata mock and poke fun at Johnny Lingo. He said, this is it. It's all got to do with his marriage. It's all got to do with his marriage. You see... At the last annual festival, Johnny Lingo, the most eligible bachelor in the whole island group here, came to Kiniwata and he found himself a wife. Well, Mr. Harris said, well, that's, that's pretty normal. What's funny about that? Well, he said, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Let me, let me continue. Johnny Lingo came here at the time of the festival and he proposed to his childhood sweetheart, Mahana. Now, he said, listen carefully. Because Mahana was considered by her neighbours and even her father to be ugly and of little value. She was plain, skinny. She walked with rounded shoulders. She always had her, her head down. She was very shy. She was hesitant. She lacked confidence. He said, Mr. Harris, people of the island, when they looked at Mahana, they would say, look at her. She has the face of a stone. 
She has the face of a stone. Surely she's not going to be worth much more than than one cow, if that. So Johnny Lingo came to marry his childhood sweetheart. And as was the, the custom in the islands, Johnny Lingo had to pay the dowry for his bride with a gift of cows for her father. Well, most of the women in the village, they bragged of being four cow wives, some even five cow wives, the, the highest amount ever paid for a wife on the island. Well, when they started talking about Mahana's dowry, they said, well, you know, it's with a face like hers, a face of stone, with a lack of confidence that she has, Man, her father's going to be lucky. Maybe if he can get one cow. And so Mahana's father, who also told her that she, was, that she was very ugly, he hoped that he might get even one sickly cow for his undesirable, unattractive daughter, Mahana. Especially as he, who was he dealing with? He was dealing with Johnny Lingo. And Johnny Lingo, if anyone could work the best deal, if anyone could organise a bargain, it was Johnny Lingo. And it was Johnny Lingo that he was going to negotiate with regarding this dowry. And so he went to the, 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 the counsellors, the elders of the, the village, and he said, look, Mahana, you know what she looks like? Um... I'm up against Johnny Lingo. How am I going to get any dowry for my daughter? And so the the elder said, well, look, there's not much we can do to help you. He said, you know, Johnny Lingo, he always gets a bargain. They said, look, why don't you do this? Tell Johnny Lingo you want three cows for your daughter. And then hopefully you can hold him to one cow. So when the bargaining begins, the father starts straight out. The villagers are standing around, all listening and watching with interest. And uh, the bargaining starts and Mahana's father says, I want three cows, expecting Johnny Lingo to bargain him down and down to one sickly cow. Well, when, when, when Moki, Mahana's father, said three cows, the villagers, well, they just packed up. They burst into laughter, pointing and and mocking Mahana, believing she isn't worth anything near three cows. And then there was silence because they were keen to see precisely how Johnny Lingo, the man who always got the best bargain, would talk down the price and swindle Mahana's father. So Johnny Lingo considers the offer. Three cows for my daughter. And he turns to her father and he said, Moki, three cows are a lot to pay for a bride. 
And then he looks the father straight in the eye and he says, three cows is a lot to pay for a bride, but it's not enough. I will pay eight cows for the hand of Mahana, your daughter, in marriage. Johnny Lingo. He offered an unheard of price of eight cows for Mahana's hand in marriage. It was unprecedented. It had never, ever happened before. What was the record price up until now? Five Five cows. And here this guy comes along and he offers eight cows. Eight cows for a wife. Well, the locals just couldn't believe it. They thought he must have been drunk or something wrong with him. Why on earth would he offer eight cows? Well, after the wedding ceremony, Johnny and Mahana, they left Kiniwata and they went to live on the island of Nurabandi, where Johnny came from. And then the islander who'd been talking to Mr. Harris said, and Mr. Harris, that's the reason. That's the reason that all we islanders here on Kiniwata, we laugh at Johnny Lingo because they love to see how the smartest trader in all the islands was fooled by dull old Moki Mahana's father. Sometime later, Mr. Harris traveled to Nurabandi. He needed to do some trading. And so he wanted to meet this Johnny Lingo, this guy that had the reputation of being the smartest trader in all the islands, and yet he's duped by a dull old man. And instead of paying one cow, he pays eight. He was curious to find out more about this shrewd trader who'd been swindled. As he's sitting there, In Johnny Lingo's home, Mohana came in to place some flowers on the table. And as she came in and Johnny Lingo said, my wife Mohana, she came in, he was amazed. He was amazed because she wasn't the shy, plain or hesitant person that he was expecting. In fact, Mahana was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. She was poised. She was graceful. She was confident. She was radiant. And Mr. Harris wondered how she could possibly be the same woman that had been described to him by the islanders on Kiniwata. Well, Johnny could see the amazement, the amazement in in his expression, in his face. He couldn't hide it. And he said to Mr. Harris, have they been talking about me over there in Kiniwata? And he said, yes, they told me that you're the, Mr. Harris said, they told me that you're the, you're the best guy for making a deal, that you're the best. And he said, yes, and what else did they tell you? Well, he said, um, they told me that you paid eight cows for your wife. Why? 
Ah, said Johnny Lingo. <laughs> I have paid more cows for my wife than anyone else in the island. And so Mr. Harris thought, ah, ha, thought this to himself. It was vanity that caused him to, to pay the record price. Well, as I say, Johnny Lingo could see the, the, the surprised expression on Mr. Harris's face. And so he explained. He said, I'll tell you why I paid the eight cows. He said, Mr. Harris, you think about it. You think about how it must make a girl feel to know that her husband paid a very low dowry for her. It must be insulting to know that her husband places such little value on her. He said, Mr. Harris, you think about how she must feel when the other woman here on the island boasts about the high prices that their husbands have paid for them. It must be embarrassing for her. And he said, you know what? I wasn't going to let that happen to my Mahana. I wasn't going to let that happen to her. And so Mr. Harris turned to him and said, so, all right, Johnny, so you paid eight cows just to make your wife happy. Johnny looked at him and he said, well, of course, I wanted Mahana to be happy. I wanted her to be happy, but there's more to it than that. You say that she's different to what you expected. I can tell by the expression on your face that that's what you're thinking. You say she's different to what you expected. And that's true. And he said, Mr. Harris, many things change a woman. He said, Mr. Harris, there are things that happen on the inside and things that happen on the outside. However, the thing that matters most is how she views herself. He said, Mr. Harris, over there in Kiniwata, she was worth nothing. She believed she was worth nothing. And as a result, that's the way she behaved. That's the way she projected herself. Her father told her she was ugly. All her friends, the neighbours all said, you're ugly, you're dumb. And as a result, that's the way she behaved. But now, Mr. Harris, she knows that she is the most valuable person in all the islands. She's worth more than any of the other women in the islands. And he said, Mr. Harris, I can tell by the look on your face that you know it shows, doesn't it? He said, I wanted to marry Mahana. I loved her and no other woman at all. But then he finished by saying very softly, Mr. Harris, I wanted an eight-cow wife. You see, friends, every human being from the cradle to the casket responds to respect. 
You know that, don't you? We all know that. Every one of us responds to respect. We respond to people who see and draw out our hidden potential. And now it's true, not every one of us will become as beautiful physically as Mahana did. But our inner beauty will shine in ways that will significantly influence our physical presence and and bring new light into our eyes when people pay us respect. Does it cost anything to show a person respect? When you respect someone, you are valuing them. You are saying to them, you are worthwhile. You see, Mahana's status, her value, her worth, her self-image, you notice is determined by what someone is prepared to pay for her. Isn't that right? And the question for each of us this afternoon is, What about us? How many cows are you worth? How do we place a value on people in our society? How do we do it? Just think with me for a moment. Isn't it by the cars we drive? The houses we live in? The watches we wear, the fashions on our back, isn't that true? How, what's, how do people get status in our society today? Isn't it through these means? We are, we are bombarded with these value ideas every day when we watch television. Every ad on television will be, will be, will be sending this message. If you have this car, oh, people will think you're important. Oh, you've got to have this watch. If you have this watch, you'll you'll have made it. You've got to wear this brand of clothes or this type of shoe. And then you will find that people will respect you. They will admire you. And so we we place a, a value on people according to what they drive, where they live, what they wear, the job that they do. So how about us? How many cows are you worth? Did you know that God is in the cattle business? Let me read to you from Psalm chapter 50. If you've got your Bibles, look with me to Psalm chapter 50. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Psalm 50, and I'm going to read a passage from verses 7 to 10. Psalm chapter 50, and notice the words here, verses 7 through 10. I am your God, for every animal of the forest is mine. And the what? The cattle of a thousand hills are God's. He's in the cattle business. He could pay any number of cows. 
So what about us, friends? How much are you worth? How many cows are you worth? You know, Jesus told us how much we are worth in many of the stories that he told. We call them parables. Jesus told stories to communicate some of the most important truths available to us as human beings. And I want you to listen to what he says here in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. Matthew, the 13th chapter. I'm going to start reading at verse 44 and I'm going to go through to 46. Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 44. Have you got it in your Bibles? Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. This is what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says he's telling a story to communicate a vital truth. And he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had. And what did he do? He bought the field. Now, why did he buy the field? Why did he buy the field? Because of the treasure. And Jesus goes on in the very next verse, verse 45. You notice he says here, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. So he paints a picture of a, 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 a specialist, a pearl specialist, a merchant who specializes in buying the very best of pearls. And he's out hunting, he's looking for fine pearls. And notice what he says in the very next verse, verse 46. And when he found one of great value, notice what he does. He went away and he sold what? Everything. All that he had. And what did he do with the money? He bought it. He bought it. Now friends, these two stories are obviously connected. Each parable mentions that a man finds something of immense value. Immense value. And he sells everything he has in order to buy What is of immense value? And so he tells of a man who finds himself in a field. We're not told why he was in the field. But as he's in this field, he he stumbles on something. And so can you picture him? He gets down on his, what's this? And he begins to remove the dirt He quickly covers it up. He takes off. He sells everything he has so that he can buy that field. Why? Because he wants the treasure. Do you see? This one thing is worth everything. This one thing is worth everything. And so he gives up everything he has in order to obtain this one thing. And then the pearl of great value or the pearl of great price. He tells of a merchant who is out looking for pearls. And he goes down to the marketplace, possibly near the the ocean where these pearls come in, uh, where they are are brought in and traded. And there he begins to go through the, the marketplace, looking in the various stalls and the shops because he's looking for something special. 
And so he's looking through the, the ah, hold on. Ah. Mm, can I have a look at that? Mm, yes. What about the one next to it? Oh, no, you wouldn't want the one next to it. That's, that's beyond you. That, that's, that pearl there is. No, I'd like to have a look at it, please. And so the merchant places the pearl in his hand. And yes, it is the pearl of great price. He has seen nothing like it before. And so he determines that he must have that pearl. And he's prepared to give up everything and anything in order to take possession of that pearl. You see, that one thing is worth everything. We, as we tell these stories that Jesus told, look for the meaning in the story. And we say that the treasure and the the pearl of great price, that represents who? That's Jesus. And as we are going through, through life and we meet Jesus, why? Well, it's worth giving up everything in order to have Jesus. Isn't that right? I was running an evangelistic series of, of meetings in a country town in Victoria. And it's always interesting to watch people attending as we get through into the, into the, into the heart of the series to watch the people who are coming regularly. And there was one man coming regularly. He sat about halfway, sat in the same place virtually every, every, every evening. He would come and sit about halfway down the, uh, the theatre. And eventually I met him and asked him who he was and what he did. And it surprised me. He said, well, I, I own the, uh, the car dealership down on, 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 on Howard Street. Uh, and, and wanted to show an interest. I said, and, and, and what cars do you, you know, what franchises do you have? He said, well, I've got Jaguar. I've got Land Rover. I've got Volvo. I've got Subaru. And he said a couple of others. Well, by then I was thinking, you know what I was thinking? Oh, no. What's going to happen here? (laughs) He kept coming. And the truths of God were presented each week and, and, and he kept coming. And the Sabbath truth was presented. And I thought, oh, no, Lord, what's going to happen now? Because I knew that Saturday, Saturday morning, is the most profitable, busy time of the week in a new car franchise. And here he is selling all these luxury models of car. People who buy those cars, they work hard during the week. They want to come in on a Saturday. And I thought, Lord, what's going to happen here? Is he going to be... What do you, uh. you know, the most amazing thing happened. The Lord spoke to that man's heart and he decided that come what may, he was going to close his business Friday night, Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, and he would not open it at all on Saturday. The only dealership in the whole of Australia 
that would not be open on a Saturday morning. Well, you can imagine the, the Jaguar people and the Volvo people and the Peugeot people who had to see cars moving off the, off the lots. They were very concerned about this. And so the gentleman said to them, look, let's give it a try. He said, I will not open the business on a Saturday under any circumstances. So let's find a way to work this out. Give me an opportunity to continue to run the business. And if we don't make it, then we'll come back and we'll, we'll take the next step. You know, friends, that business boomed to everyone's amazement. And I thought to myself, here is somebody who's been prepared to put everything on the line in order to follow Jesus and keep his commandments. That's amazing. A few years later, we're running a program right down the very south of New Zealand. Town, a, a, a town that could only be called a town, about 80,000 population. New Zealanders, it was Invercargill, about as far south as you can go before Bluff. And again, we were running the program in a theatre about this size. And I noticed that there was a, a young man, a big guy. He was young, but he was big. Started to attend the programs regularly. I got to know him, asked him what he did. He was a rugby player. And he had represented New Zealand in rugby. So you, if you're from New Zealand, you know it's a religion there. And uh, yeah, yeah, too, I guess. Uh, and I thought again, oh no, what's going to happen? When, when, what's going to happen when we get to the testing truth? He kept coming. And the Sabbath was presented. And I thought, Lord, only you can impress his heart and guide him as to what he should do, Lord. Well, how, how can I compete with with a place in the national squad in rugby league. You know that young man made a decision to give up rugby and to become a Seventh-day Adventist. And I thought again, man, here is a young guy in the prime of his career, can play with the, the rugby league All Blacks. Rugby union, I know, are All Blacks, but rugby league, they play in black. Kiwis, there you go. And he's going to give all that up to follow Jesus. For me, that's just, wow. Then we're running a program here in Sydney. And there was a young man who began to attend the programs and I could tell he was from another country and it didn't take long for me to realize that he belonged to another religion. And I thought, oh, how long is this going to last? But he kept coming. And he kept coming. And I thought, Lord, again, I know what the consequences are for this young man if he becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Lord, what are you going to do? He kept attending. And when the first call was made for baptism, that young man stood up 
and came to the front. I knew what that meant. And I said to him, what's going to happen? He said, well, I know that I'm going to be disowned by my family. Because in our culture, in our religion, in our family, no one changes their religion. It's forbidden. But he said, I've come to know Jesus. And I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. And he did. He was baptized. And yes, he lost his family. Would not ever see him again. Didn't want to hear from him. Didn't want anything ever to do with him again. In fact, he couldn't even return home. Could not return home. But he said, Gary, I have a new family. I belong to Jesus' family. And I thought, man, he's given up everything. He's, he's cut the closest and most important ties that we have in this world in order to accept Jesus. He's found the pearl of great price. And he's going to give up everything in order to take that pearl. And so when we read this parable, we think, you and I, we are the the treasure finder. We are the the merchant. And of course, the treasure and the the pearl, they represent who? They represent Jesus and the, the kingdom of God. And it's worth giving up everything in order to have Jesus. But you know, friends, there's another way of looking at these two parables. Instead of thinking of the treasure hunter as you, think of the treasure hunter as God. So instead of you being the merchant, picture God going through the marketplace. And now the story is very different. Because now the treasure hidden in the field is you. The pearl of great value is you. You are worth everything to God. And so how does God value you? What does he sell to make his purchase? Not the cattle of a thousand hills. You see, the question would be better asked, who? Who did God give in order To make his purchase. Who did he give? Jesus. Jesus, his only son. His greatest treasure. To make you his. You see, friend, God sees you as his treasure. 
the pearl of great price, the pearl of great value, worth even the life and suffering of Jesus, His own dear Son. Oh, my friends, do we grasp the depth of these stories that Jesus tells us? Do you realize that God was prepared to give not just the best that heaven had to offer. He gave all that heaven had to offer. He gave everything. And he gave everything for you. That's what you mean to God. That's what you are worth. And let me tell you this. If everyone in this room was perfect, except you. If everyone in this city was perfect, except you. If you were the only sinner in Australia, if you were the only sinner on planet Earth, God would still have given everything Just for you. Just for you. You see, friends, in telling these beautiful stories of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, Jesus wants you to know that there is nothing more precious to God than you. Now, you might be thinking, listen, Gary, (laughs) you don't know me. If you only knew the things that I've done in my life, if you only knew the mess that I have made, <laughs> you just don't understand. Friends, maybe I don't understand. But let me tell you this God understands. In the story, Where is the treasure found? Where is it found? In the dirt. It's found in the dirt. It's a messy business. And where did that pearl come from? It came from an oyster that's covered in the slush and the muck of the ocean. But you know what? The merchant removed the dirt, the muck, the mess, in order to get the treasure. And my friend, no matter what has happened in your life, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what dirt is there, no matter what muck lies in your history, God will take you from it and he will clean you and he will polish you and he will bring out who you really are. Friend, you mean everything to God. You are the most precious object in the universe to God. You are the great treasure. 
You are the pearl of great price. And you know what? God won't be happy until you are living with him again. And one day soon, Jesus is coming back to claim his treasure, to claim his pearl of great price. Oh, my friend, when Jesus comes, don't disappoint him. He's given everything for you. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit fountaininthecity.com.au.
The John Marshall family sang, I Gave My Life for Thee. And coming up next, the Hawks Trio will sing, To Rescue a Sinner Like Me. I don't understand how a God so divine could lower himself to a life such as mine and consider me worth every minute of time to rescue a sinner like me.
Hi, I'm the two-tip lady who loves to share tips to help make your life more simple and rewarding. Do you often feel that your life is dry and drab and boring? Then I've got two tips for you today, so listen up. You may not live in our blisteringly parched and dry Aussie countryside, so I'm just going to share a picture with you. I'm going to paint it in words. It's so easy to think that this drought-stricken, dry Aussie countryside is brittle, barren and boring. Aha, uh-huh, but it's not. Even though as far as the eye can see there's crunchy brown dead grass and our eyes are often blinded by dust whipped into whirly-whirlies by hot skittish breezes, at ground level there isn't even a hint of green anywhere and at first glance the baked landscape seems deserted and desolate. But we've discovered that there really is beauty all around, if we look for it. Every day, we try to hike our 10,000 steps with our eyes and ears open. And you know we're always rewarded. So I'll describe our rewards from just one evening. An inquisitive young alpaca nosed up to the rickety fence and daintily accepted our offering of a bit of green grass that we'd carried with us from a more cultured spot. A sweet luxury not to be found in its pen. Our footsteps disturbed birds who'd been peacefully roosting in the early evening in their favourite trees. They sped off to perch single file on the power line, staring crossly at us and voicing their disapproval while we slipped past. Danger over, the loud whirring of their wings again accompanied their retreat to their favourite spot. Ah, true, natural country music. Lots of hungry kangaroos stood to attention like statues as we passed by. I wonder what they were thinking as their eyes followed us, whiskers twitching, with muscles flexed, ready to bound off if we came too close. We hiked past farmsteads surrounded by dreary, dry dirt, yet you wouldn't believe it, they had unbelievably green trees highlighting their driveways. Just how those trees are decorated with green leaves is a complete mystery to us when all the surroundings are a dark baked brown. They must have roots that extend deep into the dusty earth and tap into water down there somewhere. I photographed an old gnarled tree looking as if at some point it simply didn't have the energy to stand tall anymore, with its main trunk lying prostrate on the ground. But eventually it had risen above its circumstances and now beautifies the landscape with its swaying and lightly rustling pale green leaves. Perhaps it grew again after living well and falling after a massive drought. Just thoughts to ponder. Perhaps our lives seem drought-stricken and dreary. But let's keep our eyes open because all around us nature is an open lesson book, beckoning us to think, look and be rewarded with unexpected surprises that refresh and renew our hope. Is it ever easy to take that first of our daily 10,000 steps? Oh no, I know that, but we are always rewarded. We were rewarded again every single time we get going and do it. So here are my simple two tips for us all today. Do you want to stay green like the farmstead trees when you're surrounded with the barren and the dry? Tip number one, here it is. Take those first steps. Open God's Word and Guess what you do next? You read it. You may not feel like it, but do it anyway. You'll be rewarded, just like we are when we step out on our walk. 
You'll grow a deep root structure that will feed you and bring delight that you can share. Psalms chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 promises this. This is what it says. Delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Wow! So what was tip number one? Take those first steps and read God's word. Tip number two, you ready for it? Train your mind to look for the beautiful and share what you find. If your life seems to be dry and drab and boring, turn your eyes outward. Notice the good around you and in others. Notice the unexpected little surprises that God brings your way. Share them with others and your own life will flourish too. Just reminding you, tip number one, take those first steps and read God's word. Tip number two, train your mind to look for the beautiful and share what you find. That's it from the two-tip lady today who loves to help make your life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.